0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Mangum Reads, or as we're focused on this week, the celebration of all things Sarah for becoming a doctor. Congratulations, Sarah.
1: Oh, thanks, guys. Yeah,
0: congratulations.
1: Uh, Thanks. It has been a long and arduous process, but now I can actually, like, read for fun again. Um, So that's
0: (laughs) You say that, but you're part of this podcast, so we're not offering any guarantees that you have that in your future.
1: (laughs) As long as you don't pick guards' guards again, it seems like I'll be Okay.
0: (laughs) Oh, don't threaten me. I've got a whole list of branches (laughs) that we're going to explore before this series is done.
2: Um, You do know that I still have Bridget Terabithia in my back pocket.
0: Yeah, you you can keep threatening that as much as you want. I will read it, and I will cry, and I will talk about my crying, and I'm okay with this. Okay. (laughs) But, again, Sarah, congratulations. Uh, We need to decide at some point whether we need to refer to you as doctor at all moments in this podcast going forward, but I'll let you decide that once you've fully detoxed. Oh, no, I think that's
1: appropriate. I think that's right.
0: Okay. Uh, well, if you'd like, if you'd like to announce your title right now formally, so that we can know it and write it down and have it just binding on the podcast going forward, I allow you if to you'd do like so. Like
1: to tattoo it on your arm, that would be okay too. That would be fine. Um, yeah, need
0: to specify which arm before I can do that. <laughs>
1: um, no, it, it is. It is technically Doctor. Technically Doctor George Waterfield.
0: <laughs> I, I am. I am in the grace of, of, of professionals here. I am merely an esquire, but I aspire to the greats that you two offer. <laughs>
2: So you can Esquire to our doctors. I,
0: I did check. Yes. I
2: can technically become a
0: doctor of judicial science, uh, which will allow me to formally use that title. But I ain't doing that. <laughs> I would have to get an LLM. I'd have about six more years of schooling. I'm going to skip that phase. I would warn you against Yeah, that, that, that sounds like a good that. idea. <laughs> <laughs> but. For this week, we are wrapping up our exploration of the wonderful book *Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil*. We have explored the baseline trial and the quote-unquote main story. We've explored a variety of characters, a couple of which I think we still have left to talk about, but we really haven't had much of an opportunity to discuss who I think is the main characters of of the story, the city of Savannah. So I thought. Let's wrap up with discussing a few more characters we think relevant, maybe discuss which character of this long panoply of wonderful, creative individuals we found most enjoyable, and then explore Savannah itself and what the hell the writer was trying to have us get out of this story in his many multi-year explorations of this little southern town.
2: Spencer, I'm I'm a little disappointed. I figured you'd start us off with something like, you know, join us on a scintillating stroll through the streets and squares of Savannah, but... It was uh, quite a mess.
0: You know, I tried. I tried to think of various things that had, to, had that various group terms and celebration terms that start with the letter D. And the, my thesaurus was letting me down to tie this to Sarah's, to Sarah's doctoral achievement. So I just decided we just focus on that and skip the and skip the fat
2: Okay, sounds but, good.
0: Characters who have we not really talked about yet? I think we've covered a wide range, but in my mind, there's at least a couple that uh, deserve some further notice.
2: Uh, yeah, um, I, I think. Lee Adler um, plays a fairly significant role uh, in, in the books, and we've sort of barely touched on him in reference to uh, the trial and things like that, but he plays a very large side role, um, and then well, probably the... I don't yeah, know. Well,
0: well let's, let, let's start with him and then see where okay. we go from there. Sounds good. Uh, in terms of basic background, what, what, uh, BJ, what can you tell us about who Lee, Lee Adler is?
2: Um... Well, there there are certain descriptors. Um, so he's the uh, neighbor of Jim Williams, but he's essentially one of the only uh, Jews, and his family is one of the only Jewish families in Savannah, or at least in the Savannah elite. That's in uh, that's being discussed in the story.
0: Other than the one other member of the Oglethorpe Club who is Jewish, essentially in a way that they can say that he's Jewish, but not in any other practical
2: form. Right. Um, And so it comes up a fair bit, actually, in the book uh, with the Oglethorpe Club that you mentioned, where um, it's this uh, club for Savannah Society that, you know, only certain members in very good standing are allowed into. And essentially being of the right, I assume, evangelical Christian is sort of one of the not quite requirements, like they do let Catholics in, but it's sort of one of those... uh, one of those type groups, mm-hmm. yeah, there are like some
1: expectations as to who you are, um, class wise, wealth wise, um, religion or organized religious affiliation wise. Um, but also, you get hints that there is also, um, a kind of requisite amount of time that you or your family have spent in Savannah, too, right.
0: Mm-hmm. The Samantha seems to be built around what clubs you are a member of, what little social groups you revolve in. And in terms of the most exclusive of the most exclusive, it seems like the Oglethorpe is at the top of the list. It's for like yeah. you are viewed as a founding member of this town, be it from blood or descent or just the importance in which we hold you. And very explicitly, quite a few of the very powerful and wealthy characters we have in this book have never been offered to join. Jim Williams being one and Lee Adler being another.
1: Yeah, yeah, and Lee uh, Adler is really sort of introduced um, in interesting ways as um, not necessarily a foil of Jim Williams, but like an, an interesting kind of mirror image of him. They actually have quite a lot in common, at least on the surface, of kind of who they are and what they do in Savannah.
0: Right. I agree. I think... I mean, there's several characters we get multiple perspectives on, but I think Lee Adler and Jim Williams are the ones that we see from the most different ways. If we not only see from the narrator's point of view, he describes and meets them, but we hear from several other characters looking at them about how they are judged and how those stories do not always in any way square.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, and they are, I, they are certainly the sort of like subject of, for a variety of commentary. different reasons, part, commentary, gossip, um, all of the things that kind of make Savannah go. We uh-huh. see part of the reason we get all of these different voices is, is that both of these characters are, are easy fodder for um, Savannah socialites and gossips to talk about.
2: Yeah. Um, and so I think that there are a couple of important times that they, uh, this comes up. And I think the first one is an early story that we talked about with Jim Williams, where he was unhappy about a movie shoot. That was essentially happening in the square in front of uh, his house, where he put out a Nazi flag. Mm-hmm. Um, and this did not sit super well with his Jewish neighbor, um, for <laughs> reasons that are uh, unknowable, yeah. obviously. What?
1: <laughs> um, it,
0: it, it seems Jim forgot that immediately across the street from him, he's got A, one of the few Jewish neighbors in town, and B, isn't there also like a synagogue across the street too? <laughs> Doesn't he describe that as well that one of the rabbis came to complain to him as well?
2: I don't remember that, but that's very possible. Mm. Um, I, either way, it made him in Yeah. It, it was sort of one of those things where it's just like, oh, well, you know, so sort of maybe the easiest way to, to get the movie set to, to run along is to put out a Nazi flag, and that's clearly not part of like a, an 1800s uh, set piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it sort of, we sort of see a little insight into maybe the rivalry between jim williams and lee adler um and i think that in terms of uh their place in savannah society uh lee adler is sort of jim williams as as you said sarah not quite foil but i would say almost rival in Mm -hmm. terms of the revitalization and uh the amount of money they put into uh preserving savannah Mm -hmm. and they take two a couple of at least two very different ways of doing it. And um, and so they have a rivalry that could very well be a good one, but it isn't. Um, and as opposed to working sort of synergistically, they just essentially, what, as far as I can tell, butt heads.
0: They seem to be very much involved in the same industry where they're both heavily, they're both part of the historic preservation of Savannah, they're both part of the historic community that protects the historic downtown. They are not. Well, they were at one yeah, point. Yes, they were at one point. <laughs> um, and, but uh, in terms of, despite the fact that in the same industry of restoring homes, they have very different purposes about it. I mean, Jim Williams's purpose is very explicitly: I'm here to make money. I'm here to. I saw a deal. I restored it. I revitalized it. I'm flipping it and reselling it. I'm making money. The money's the goal. Everything else doesn't really matter. Everything will come with the money. For well, Leander, we had. I
2: said what? so. What I would say to that is. He is revitalizing, he is trying to make money, but he's very much a preservationist. And so it's not enough to maintain the outward facade of, you know, what they're supposed to look like. But the internals are supposed to be uh, essentially period pieces and so be stuck in the time that they were built. And so there are these gorgeous manors and and things like that, that he uh, restores to their former glory, but not updating them as I think you were about to say Lee Adler does.
1: Yeah, I
0: mean, Jim, Jim explicitly takes a great deal of pride in his work and looks down on Lee Adler for shoddy construction, be that if it is Jim just taking pride in his work or the clientele that he deals with who demands a certain level of authenticity in the antiques business that he's in, it does lead to some tension. Um, and then for Lee Adler, his motivations are whether you believe Lee Adler or whether you believe everybody's talking about Lee Adler for why he's invested in this of whether, A, he's very much invested in protecting the historic downtown and offering an increased degree of access to a wider world that's been in some ways ignored by this, or all of his uh, various uh, gossip hounds that follow him around who are of the view that he's doing this as a means to power very, very successfully with the cloak of what his uh, stated motivations are.
1: And I would yeah. also point out that you know one of the one of the differences too is um, at least in my mind is that Jim Williams takes a great amount of pride in the the amount of the restoration and the process of the restoration that he does himself. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. Or at least directly um, directly kind of generals right? He directly marshals what is going on and does a good deal of the restoration himself mm-hmm. too. Um, and he seems to me in, in at least. Well, in several ways throughout the novel, um, he is much more inward focused um, and a kind of much more um, self-sustaining individual than I think Lee Adler is presented in, in any of the different voices that we hear talk about him, too. Um, so there, there are different focuses for each of them as well that kind of come out in the restoration process, um, but also come out in, in other ways that I'm sure we'll talk about, too.
2: Yeah, no,
0: that's a good point. I think it reflects another difference in terms, terms of the background of where the two characters are coming from, of where I think part of Jim Williams' focus in terms of his own accomplishment, what he does, and the level of his investment in his work is that he is very much self-made in a way I don't think we really get for Lee Adler, yeah. of where Jim Williams came from, the lowest of the low in terms of society, and has worked his way up to his position, is very proud of what he's personally accomplished in that regard. I, do we get much about where Lee Adler comes from? I think it was briefly discussed, but they I don't think he came quote from... Oh, right here, if pl- you would like. Please, tell us.
1: Um, so, Lee Adler was Leopold Adler II, the grandson of the founder of Adler's department store, Savannah's answer to Saks Fifth, Fifth Avenue, and his mother was a, nie- a niece of um, Julius Rosenwald of the Sears Roebuck fortune. Emma Adler, who is his <laughs> wife, uh, was the sole heir to the biggest block of stock in the Savannah Bank. She had been president of the Junior League and was an active member in several civic organizations. So the reality of the situation was that both Jim Williams and the Adlers were prominent, influence, influential, and rich. They lived in such close proximity and moved in so many of the same circles that they felt obliged to remain on cordial terms, um, which is why, despite his loathing for them, Jim Williams always invited the Adlers to his Christmas parties, and why, even though they des- detested Williams in return, the Adlers always accepted. <laughs>
0: Well, I think at some. there may be a bit of an element of class divide between the two, both on how they carry themselves, where they came from, and their perspective about how they go about their work. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think what they see as their roles in society as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, we, and I think that's sort of, and we have vaguely touched on it, but basically the very opposite sides of the coin on the restoration. And so Jim Williams, as we said, you know, is very much maintaining the uh, – internals and externals of of, uh, houses that he would renovate and essentially would be sold to probably another member of society because they are, uh, for all intents and purposes, mansions. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh, Whereas Lee Adler was essentially converting these into smaller apartments so that they would be uh, more affordable, uh, very much the uh, affordable housing movement, uh, if you will.
0: Maintaining the facade, but everything else has been torn out.
2: Right, and essentially converted so it can be a multifamily structure. And uh, there are various opinions on whether he's doing good or shoddy work or, you know, the motivation behind doing this. But I think this is a very uh, contentious issue uh, even today in terms of, you know, what what people do to try and revitalize cities. Mm Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, I don't think that there is a good or right answer, um, but I think that it's interesting that this was such a sticky issue uh, 45, oh, almost 50 years ago uh, in Savannah. Yeah, it, it, and it's, it's it? the
1: question of how how you do downtown, um, or urban-ish, anyway, I don't know if Savannah is really, like, urban. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That doesn't strike me as correct. Um, Not in the
0: definitional <laughs> use for most towns, right? no.
1: But the way you do, what what essentially your purpose in downtown um, revitalization is and whether that is um, a kind of um, a turn to affluence um, or a sort of turn to access. Um, and so we have those two different, we have those two different approaches on display here and they are talked about uh, ad nauseum over the course of this novel and also kind of within... Um, within Savannah society as well, as to the kind of relative pros and cons of each of them, um, and what those mean for, like, different types of people that we meet throughout the novel as well.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's interesting that, essentially, the uh, schools of thought are fairly mutually exclusive. Like, there's no... Mm -hmm. Uh, opinion that, that we see in the book that's like alright well we can do a little bit of column A and a little c- bit of column B and have like a good synergy and then you know that'll progress us you know in a good direction it's pretty much everybody thinks that one of the ways is the right way to go forward and the other way is dead wrong
1: and I think in that you get a real sense especially at this time and place in Savannah that there actually is only only so much pie Um, and so they have to, they at least feel in that moment, like they have to be making a choice as to where to put their investment.
2: Yeah.
0: Um. it it all, I think it's also an element of too about some people don't, don't, don't necessarily doubt, um, what could be done if, uh, Lee Adler actually had these proper motives in terms of bringing people in, in terms of this, his style of urban renewal. It's just, they may not really care enough about it to do it correctly. Yeah. That, he may just be using it so purely as a means to gain power that he's actually just engaging in work that is just not done in the right place in the right manner like we talk about with these victorian homes that they're just not the homes to be doing this in to kind of restore the for urban ha- for a low-income housing it's not in the right neighborhood they're kind of the nature of homes where you are going to have to essentially rebuild them every three or so years that it's just not in any way going to be cost effective for what he wants to do with it but he's just done it because they're victorian homes they look great in the exterior it's a very public project by which he can gain international recognition outside of Savannah.
1: And so I think some yeah. also, oh, yeah. and and that he can sort of keep one or two of them up for show as well. Um, there is this, right. there is very much this sort of like element of facade going on there, both with the homes themselves as well as with the sort of underlying structure of how he is running this project.
0: Yeah. So I think I think there is an element of legitimate difference of opinion, but I think it's also just an element of condemnation that it's yeah. not that there is legitimate, so legitimate opinion is that he's just using the notion of one to get outside influence and outside control and make us all put us all in a position where we can't criticize him, that he's just using a facade to obscure his actual intent.
2: Right. And I I feel like as, as you sort of mentioned, uh, a little bit sideways is that also he's introducing a population to the, a neighborhood that wouldn't otherwise be there. And so I could also see a lot of the criticism of this is just a facade and then we can't criticize, Uh, Mm -hmm. being a, well, we don't really want, uh, a different socioeconomic class in our midst. And And a different race
1: in our midst as well. Sure. Yeah. Right.
0: Though though even some of the characters, well, the characters argue with that back and forth. It's such an interesting chapter where we get Lee Adler introduced to us because the first half of it is from Lee Adler's point of view. Mm -hmm. The second half of it is several of his gossips talking about their own point of view on him. And they don't fully agree. Of like One of the things they say for this Victorian neighborhood that's nearby, which I think they kind of like say is like immediately south of the historic district, it's the, the next in the historic line of homes, is that some of them say, well, you're just not content with, you just don't like the idea that it's becoming a heavily black community, to which they respond, it wasn't always a black community, it was originally actually a mixed community, and that his actions have made it more black, they've turned it into a ghetto, and so... Two, as you said, there's two ways it seems like there's definitely an element of they are uncomfortable with this degree of racial cultural change that's happening in that community, or they're uncomfortable with the fact that he's framing it as a black community is preserving, when in reality he's changing it to be that. So, I mean, I there is, even among his critics, that seems like they're uncomfortable with how they can go about criticizing him just because of the complex issues that are at play going into it.
2: Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, this plays a lot into. Um, the discussion of any what people would talk about as hot button topics where one side basically says well I can't say what I would say normally because everybody's going to rail on me so I'll just sort of agree and I think that's sort of a very like straw man and bad faith way of arguing and so I think that a lot of this population is sort of saying, like, well, we can't criticize him because, and he's made it su- this way. And it's like, well, we're really racist and we're, we're going to sort of sidestep that and say, like, we can't actually criticize him for moving blacks into our, our neighborhood. So we'll just say that, like, you know, it was mixed and now, it, you know, he, he's doing a bad job and, you know, we can't really say anything because, you know, then, then we're the racist. And it's like, well, yeah, you probably are. And that's why you're framing it in this manner. Yeah, or let's mask just...
1: it with this sort of, like, architectural discussion as well. Yeah. Um, that yeah. it's it's yeah. not a question of who is there. Um, it's a question of, well, this hasn't been done in the right way. Yeah. Um, and,
2: um, and it's, it's not upkept to our standards. Right. You know, and our standards are very high. And, you know, just completely ignoring the fact that they were in complete disrepair and empty sure. before this... Well, project
0: so one of the things i really like about this book is because they're probably all right he, they probably are just racist and they're looking at that perspective they're probably also correct that he's doing a shoddy job and just using it for his own ends and using these people to gain his own degree of power and influence it's it's the, it's the wonder. it's the wonderful thing about different perspectives they all can have an element of truth to them
2: yeah i was well i was gonna go the other way and say you know we have a number of case studies in the unreliable narrator <laughs> yes <laughs> um, and they, they all do sort of a very good job of not quite getting at the truth. Well, um,
0: One of the lovely elements of a possibly unreliable narrator when it comes to Lee Adler is Jim Williams' view of his potential influence and motivations when it comes to Jim Williams. I mean, Williams is convinced that the only reason he's being prosecuted, the only reason this entire thing has been brought upon him, is because Lee Adler hates him and has set up this just Rube Goldberg series of devices to eventually bring about his end. Do we think he's right in that view that Lee Adler has this prosecutor wholly in his pocket and the only reason that Jim Williams is being prosecuted is because Lee Adler has told the prosecutor to do so? Uh,
2: I I would agree with the first half, but not the second half. Remind um, me of what
0: I said for the first half. Well, so
2: you said that Lee Adler has, uh, you know, basically backed this uh, DA, I believe, um, mm-hmm. to have him in his pocket, and I think that's fairly reasonable. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. not in his pocket, but at least is exerting influence over it uh, in, in a way that he can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, if, if, if we were to write a background to uh, this story and know a little bit more about what was going around, I could very much see that a previous DA didn't like uh or ruled against Lee Adler in terms of lo- a lot of his development projects and rezoning or or wouldn't take up the case or whatever it is. I don't know the law stuff um, mm-hmm. but basically he's trying to exert his influence on the the courts and the the uh, that sort of milieu of the Savannah society and so um, it, it happens to be that, It also coincides to a certain extent with Jim Williams' prosecution, Jim Williams' case, but I guess I don't see Lee Adler considering Jim Williams as much of a rival as Jim Williams considers (laughs) Lee Adler.
1: Yeah, I think we see like plenty of evidence that Jim Williams is like really quite the narcissist. Um, Oh yeah. And increasingly so as he descends into um, the depths of these trials and um, working with Minerva, who we're going to talk about a little bit later. Um, and while maybe at the beginning of the book, I would not, I would have, I found him a little more trustworthy than I ultimately do by the end of it. I mean, he is, he's a little nutty, um, Mm -hmm. and very self-obsessed in how he thinks everyone else is thinking and talking about him. Now, some of that is with good reason, because we've talked a lot about Savannah gossip, um, and Savannah (laughs) loves to gossip about Jim Williams, actually everyone is talking about him, but I don't don't think that this kind of like concerted effort to undermine um, Jim Williams that he has cooked up, that Lee Adler is doing, I just don't see that being, I think as you were saying BJ, it sort of coincides with his larger project, Um, but I don't think that it is the purpose and function of his larger project.
2: Yeah, I I think as as you're saying, like, you you said that that he's a narcissist. And I think that's true of a lot of the characters that we meet. mm -hmm. And I would say that, you know, Lee Adler just doesn't care enough about Jim Williams to go to this amount of work to, you know, put him in jail. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. And... No. It seems like he would be happy to like stick his foot out to trip him if he saw him walking down the street, but is not going to like <laughs> cross the street in order to
2: do so yeah i mean it's like you know in the times that he's not planning a visit with the president or like an ambassador to talk about (laughs) the duke of wales right to talk about his revitalization of savannah you know it's like oh no like i have to spend 90 percent of my time figuring out how to get jim williams in jail because that'll remove my annoying neighbor um
0: Yeah, I think at this point, I agree with you guys. I think at this point, Lee Adler not only views Jim Williams as small potatoes. I think he just views the city of Savannah as being almost small potatoes. This guy is an international focused what he's going about things. If anything, he's kind of viewed Savannah as close to him. So he's just doing the ultimately unacceptable thing of where he's going outside Savannah to talk about what he's doing. Where that that seems almost like an anathema to organized Savannah society. That he's specifically looking outward to have influence inward. Um, I also say. The I was going to takes... say
2: to to respond to that, and um, I I very much agree with you. But I and I also love this image of okay, well, you're not going to accept me into your society. I'm going to kind of destroy it with outside influence. Um, that, where expands perspective on it. You you think of of yourself as big potatoes. Well, I'm going to have you know like a presidential declaration or i'm gonna have a duke like and we're gonna discuss you know what outside money can do to the revitalization and shine a national or international spotlight on on savannah
0: it's the ultimate i'm taking my toys and going home kind of thing of where oh you disagreed with me on the historic committee and voted me out i'm gonna get national endorsement about what i want to do so that you in no way can oppose me going forward
2: yeah and to quote futurama you know I'll get my own historic society with blackjack and hookers. <laughs> Thank you, Bender. Uh, uh, but, I also think, well,
0: um, I also think that for the whole prosecutor thing, I think the book gives us an easier possible interpretation of why the prosecutor is so dead set on this is that his first trial he got after he got elected to the position, he lost a bad public one that had national, infor- that had a, a national uh, spotlight on it in terms of that trial about the, um, army Rangers attacking the, uh um, a gay guy in the street. Do you yeah, remember about that yeah, one? Yeah. Yep. Which was all kinds of messed up and he kind of blew it apparently in terms of the ultimate press, the ultimate result. So I think in some ways he took that really on the chin and he's dealing with this very public, uh, public perspective that he has very limited experience, that he has very limited knowledge, that he's not good at his job. And so now that he's got another public case in front of him, I think the main motivation behind him is not Lee Adler whispering in his ear. It's public shame that he feels he needs this win to restore his view, his uh, reputation.
2: And he does a really good job of avoiding that.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. As we kind of talked on legal nerd bitching previously, he does everything in his power possible to earn mistrials at every opportunity. It's
2: like he doesn't learn from his mistakes. No, 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 no pattern recognition there. Um, yeah, so I think that sort of uh, wraps up the the Lee Adler uh, part of Savannah. Um, I think that you know there were some minor stories about him at very various parties, but um, I think that his main role in this story, where he's not uh, present, is in Jim Williams' mind, as we discussed. And so I, I think that the uh, perceived role that he has is sort of inflated within the book because uh-huh. of uh, the. The certainty that Jim William has that that Lee Adler's out to get him.
1: Yeah, we actually like don't see his physical presence that much in the book. No. Uh, he is very much a cipher figure throughout, yeah. um, kind of the boogeyman at the at the edge of the story, um, at least in Jim Williams' perspective, um, who comes to um, sort of occupy the central space, but really only in the imagination.
2: Yes. Um, very, I, I very would true. say almost like, uh, the wizard in Wizard of Oz.
1: Yeah. <laughs> We're going to yeah. talk about him a lot, but really, really he's behind the curtain.
2: Yeah. Well in, well, in terms of other major
0: characters to discuss, um, Sarah, I think you referenced one that I'm really eager to talk about, Minerva. Yeah. Someone um, who
1: was very, very present, um, in, <laughs> in the novel. Um, so uh, we have this character Minerva. Um, what, what do we need to know to get started about Minerva?
2: Uh, I think a bit of a description about what she looks like and then uh I guess her profession. Uh-huh. um so
1: and maybe we should also sort of preface this with saying that i I would certainly say that Minerva is one of the absolute main characters. um maybe maybe a second tier character, but like very on that line. um yes, and she ah. does not get mentioned until page two hundred and thirty nine. In a 390 hmm. page book. Yeah. yeah. So I, we, are, we are well over halfway through before she gets mentioned.
2: Like best supporting actress kind of thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But
2: partic- particularly for that back half, I think she really,
0: as you said, effectively replaces a lot of the characters for the focus of where there's at least two or three chapters where it's just her and the narrator going off doing stuff.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But she very much becomes the focus of the story and really almost encap- encapsulates the kind of themes and perspective on the story in her later chapters. So I, I view her as definitely one of the most important ones we can talk about. Um, but ter- so so be- I
2: guess, what image did you have of her in your mind? Because we do get a description where she has gold rim, purple-lensed glasses, and I think that there's a description of her outfit. But um, I, my imagination, to a certain extent, was... Um, do you remember the Oracle in the Matrix movie? <laughs> I sort of had had that character. Which which, which one? The the first movie or the other one? There are no other movies. Oh, sorry. Yes.
0: (laughs) My apologies. Um,
2: (laughs) But but yeah, so the the first one and sort of that, you know, almost continually smoking, kind of scratchy, raspy voice and uh, sort of has an air of knowledge about her that may or may not be misplaced. Mm Mm-hmm. I,
0: maybe an element of that from a physical appearance coupled with every Hollywood stereotype about what a voodoo practitioner would look like. But in terms of just her bearing, I see her as being much more intimidating and almost insidious in terms of uh, just how she carries herself and how the world reacts to her. I mean, people don't want to walk in front of her in, in terms of her community, in terms of the uh, reputation and kind of aura she exudes. So I, don't, I do not see her as grandmother-like.
1: I don't see her as grandmotherly either. Although I, I think my vision of her, in contrast to yours, Spencer, was like the the reason that she is feared in the community is because of her rep- reputation, not which was not in my mind like coupled with her physical presence. I sure, envisioned sure. her as much, um, much smaller, much more withered is not the right word, but like stringy. I envision her mm-hmm. as a stringy person.
2: Yeah, I guess I imagine that. of Savannah would just sort of look at her as like a sort of not quite little old lady, but you know, an older and just have no idea. Whereas Mm -hmm. the people that know of her, know her work and, and are more believers would sort of, you know, cross the street to avoid her and, and things like that. And we see that when she enters into
1: the kind of world of the legal world, the courthouse world, world, all of that, like no one looks at her twice. Um, and I again, we'll, we'll talk more about her role and what she's doing there. But when she kind of crosses that divide, um, we see exactly what you're talking about, BJ. That, like, nobody really, nobody thinks yeah. of anything of her. And Remind I think me
2: of- she's also, like, a server at one of Jim Williams' parties. The one <laughs> yeah, that he has, right, like, yeah. while he's in jail. <laughs> and at Lee
0: Adler's, too, apparently, or
2: something like that. Yeah, and so it's, it's, it's kind of like a, a very... Uh, Daytime and, and, you know, her day job doesn't really affect anything Uh,
0: Remind me of something too Isn't she explicitly one of the quote-unquote Foreigner characters we have of this And that she's not from Savannah Doesn't he go to Buford, South Carolina to get her?
2: Yes Uh, Yeah
0: So in some ways, she is an outsider. I I, I think that doesn't factor into the fact that no one, regardless if she was part, around Savannah or not, no one in the, cr- in the upper crust that we're talking about would recognize her. But she is explicitly from outside Savannah in a way we rarely see in this book. Uh, they have to go quite far afield to go get her at first, but it seems like for the later chapters, she's kind of relocated, at least temporarily.
2: Yeah, and I, as I remember, she also was from a fairly different area and was brought to the South, essentially, because she married uh, her, I don't know how late, but late husband, mm-hmm. Dr. Buzzard, um, yes, who, you know, is a minor character into unto himself, um, and not- I, I, I sort of find her story separate from Jim Williams to be kind of funny, um, and almost as it... it pretty much as important to her as as the uh employee of of jim williams and and seemingly everything else that she does is her sort of ongoing fight with her late husband
0: (laughs) (laughs) he has those lottery numbers and he is just refusing to give them to her
2: yeah um and uh, anyway so so one of the things that uh pretty much every time that uh we meet her early on is there's uh jim williams is uh availing himself of her voodoo services Mm -hmm. and pretty much every time uh this happens like she helps him out but the other thing that she does is have an argument with her late husband about him providing her with lottery numbers so she can continue to uh support herself without having to take a harder labor job um and There sort of seems to be this back and forth where he refuses and she yells at him. And this is kind of like an ongoing thing that the author then starts talking to her about in later. Uh Um, And it's just sort of this really funny uh, image that I kind of start to get that no one really cares about Jim Williams in the way that Jim Williams thinks that they do. (laughs) And she's just another example of it's like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll help you. But did you bring me the dimes so I can try and force my ex-husband or my for, my uh, late husband to giving me lotto numbers?
1: Yeah, this is one of the places, um, kind of to to your point, BJ, where like nobody is really nobody cares as much about Jim Williams as he thinks that they do. Um, right. We really see with Minerva that she re- she is living her own life. She has her own narrative going on. We get little glimpses of that. Um, Mm -hmm. particularly when she is talking out loud to her, to her late husband. Um, but that Jim Williams and his nonsense is really just a kind of means to an end for her and what she has going on as well.
2: Yeah. And I think he briefly sort of realizes that, um, but it doesn't really get major, uh, play in the novel when he basically manufactures a horse race win for, her to get paid through uh, betting that she does.
0: Does he? Is that how we interpreted that scene, or did he just end up giving her cash? Oh, well,
2: okay, so I, when I said manufactured a, a horse race win, I, I I don't know that he fixed gotcha. a horse race. <laughs> sure. I, I think it's <laughs> he manufactured a story had a about a plus. horse yeah. race. <laughs> Yeah, so, so Spencer, I really like this concept of the world that you have, especially that, that things are more complex sometimes than they ought to be, uh, and you I were... would reference one of our other podcasts where oh, please. Uh, you had gotten an email from the melting pot, and <laughs> you, you manufactured that I had somehow spoofed an email from the melting pot for a reservation for you, rather than just signing you up and giving you a reservation to the melting pot. Um, yeah, this
0: is my Jim Williams kind of view of reality orbiting around me. It's not the easy possible interpretation. It's that there's this global conspiracy with lots of investment going on at times.
2: I mean, admittedly, there is some investment that, that we have as a group to making your life a little bit more entertaining than it might well, otherwise be.
0: Yeah, the 120 socks I got two weeks ago suggests so a little bit of that.
1: Yeah, exactly. A minimal effort, though, required.
0: I love love we're in society nowadays where this very minimal effort required to send 120 socks to someone's (laughs) door on a random whim.
1: Exactly. (sighs) All right, well, Uh... next time, Spencer, I will learn to knit, and then I will knit you 120 socks to send to your door.
0: Are you suggesting Lee didn't do it that way? (laughs) He he didn't knit them and then get the plastic sealer to put them in individual bags and then break copyright to put the logo on each individual sock?
1: I'm sorry to crush this vision of the world and your place in it that you have, Spencer. Aw.
0: Well, returning to the story. (laughs) Um, But one of the things I like, too, but we talked about how Jim Williams doesn't really care about anybody but himself. He also very much doesn't believe that anything that she's doing is actually magical. He very much almost needs to believe it isn't magical. But he does believe it kind of factors into his own view of influencing reality, of where it isn't that it's, voodoo. It isn't that it's voodoo. It isn't that it's actually some calling to the spirits or speaking with the dead. It's that it's it's another person who's wish who's willing in his favor, kind of you know, factoring into his own psychodice view of reality. To the point that he eventually kind of hires her on a full time basis to just stalk around the courtroom and his opponents, somehow wielding her influence in a positive manner. He very much believes that she's doing this. She he views her as being more successful in that regard than his attorneys but I don't think he actually has any degree of faith, trust, or credence in the idea that she's wielding magical
2: powers. So, Spencer, um, we've established that you have some courtroom experience. Yes. Are you saying that if there was a lady mumbling to herself and staring at people in a courtroom, you would not notice?
0: Would I not notice that? Oh, it would. yeah, that would factor in.
2: Okay, um, because we, we did sort of mention that like she, like no one really notices her, but I also cannot imagine <laughs> that somebody sitting in every single part of the trial sort of making odd noises and... and, and... Well,
0: I, I don't think she's being that explicit. I also don't imagine her sitting like, you know, the front of the gallery just mad-mugging mad the jury box at all times. I figured she was kind of at the back of the room doing this, in which case... No one would really distinguish her of being any different or meriting any more notice than the dozen journalists that are in there constantly taking notes.
2: Fair enough. Uh, Do is that, well, I guess for a, a more uh, popular case that, that might be uh, more reasonable, I just, I guess I don't imagine most courtrooms actually having people in it other than the people that absolutely and desperately need to be there. Um, I, well, I guess I will reference my vague experience that I almost got put on a jury because um I think that as soon as I said that I was you know in graduate school that got me knocked off I actually have no idea why I got knocked off but one of the worst experiences that I've had in terms of wastes of days um which I've heard has changed um but basically uh when I was in Champaign-Urbana I got jury duty and they basically said, you can't have any electronic devices on you. Um, uh-huh. So I did bring a book with me, but after like two hours of reading my book, I kind of wanted to do something else. Um, and also the seats were fairly uncomfortable Anyway, and then they dismissed us the next day back and forth. I actually got to walk into a courtroom briefly. They started interviewing people and very quickly I was dismissed, but there were absolutely no other people, as far as I could tell, in the courtroom, other than uh, the lawyers, the judge, and the next cases. Uh, and and it's only one like... of
0: us has, yeah, it's only one of us has one, is an experience with a murder trial. Sarah? Yeah,
1: I was gonna say, I think it, it, it really depends on what type of trial they're selecting for, um, because last summer I spent over three weeks um, on a jury um, for a murder trial, and there were always other people um, interested parties in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Now, it wasn't full until the last, um, until closing statements, and until there was a sort of expectation that we might be coming back with some sort of verdict. Um, then the courtroom was absolutely packed. But every day and mm-hmm. throughout the entire day, there were a number of other people around. Now, some of those were people um, with some sort of personal interest in the trial, but it was also clear that there were just like people who didn't have anything else to do that day who were coming in yep. to sit in on the trial
0: with very few exceptions, all trials are public proceedings, so anybody can walk in. I mean, there's just been times where I've had to spend the day at the courthouse for a hearing where I just walked into various rooms and just watched what happened. You can do that. It's just the level of interest is varying based on the nature of the proceedings.
1: And I will say that, you know, as a juror, I was not allowed at all to speak about what trial it was that I was sitting on. Um, And so did not tell anyone in my life kind of what was going on for those three weeks. Uh, But that did not stop people who knew that i was sitting on a jury from coming in and just listening to the trial which my mother mm-hmm. did um to figure out what was <laughs> really? going on yeah she happened to be she and my dad happened to be visiting for like one a long weekend one of the weeks that i was in the trial and so like one morning she came and sat in on the trial because they were trying to figure out which case which trial um i was involved in which one i was on the jury for and i was not I was not going to tell them which one it was because I was a good juror and I did everything I was supposed to do.
0: Um, You're one of the few.
1: But they were driving themselves mad trying to figure out um, which one it was. That's also
2: super weird that it's just like you can't say anything, but if they know you, they can just sort of walk with you to the court and go into the same room and being like, oh, okay, yes, you're on this court case. Yeah. Did, Did you notice them walk into the gallery?
1: My mom?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, there you go. Depending on
0: the day, depending on the hearing, jurors will notice if someone walks in looking like uh, Minerva, I suppose.
1: Yeah, or, well, I mean, my mother your is, mom is six you? foot tall with bright blonde hair, so it's just like, kind of hard to miss. Um,
0: As BJ suggested, I would enjoy the visual if your, mom, if your mom walking to the front of the gallery and just staring daggers at you <laughs> the entire year. <career. laughs>
1: That's one way to get kicked off a jury. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the... Yeah.
2: So, so maybe uh, Minerva should provide that as a future service. Of uh, you know, if you want to get kicked off a jury, she'll just like sit in the front and you know make weird faces at you. That's that's mm-hmm.
1: the real money that she could be making. She's it's a real missed opportunity here. I
0: mean, in some ways, it it suggested that she played a role in the um, the mistrial verdict that resulted, in, or the um, hung jury that resulted in the uh, the was it the second or third trial that happened to of where Jim Williams was explicitly paying her and saying that she played an integral role in that happening, Mm -hmm. whether it's just his psychodicephal reality or whether she did something more, however, is not clear.
2: Yeah, um, I do think, I want to say it was the third, um, but yeah, I I think that uh, Jim Williams likes to see agency in Mm -hmm. the world because it bothers him that there are places where uh, there isn't. And so the, I, I think he likes the illusion that the things that he does matters as mm-hmm. opposed to, and obviously I think also the, the things that people that are important to him, like Lee Adler, um, like other people in society, matter, whereas I think what's, I guess, more true to life is they may matter a little bit, but there's a lot less agency than, than he thinks, where, you know, Lee Adler did, you know, have an effect on uh, the DA being who it is, and I don't remember his name. But the actual effect that that had essentially probably got uh, Jim Williams off, honest And you know, similarly, I think that the minor effect that uh, Minerva might have had was fairly minor at, at best. And so you know, he likes to to view that people have agency, or at least the people that he considers important, have agency in the things that go around, uh, go on around them. Oh, very much.
0: I mean, Jim Williams very much stands for the idea that he rejects your reality and substitutes his own. Uh, he is not a person that in any way believes that correlation and causation don't have something to do with each other. Yeah. He's uh, he willing to see patterns in whatever occurs before him. Um, but one of the wonderful things we get to see about Minerva is just her own exploration of the society that she's in, of where this is Because of her, the book really heavily descends into the idea of Southern Gothic in terms of a theme or structure of the book. In terms of uh, our narrator spends a lot of time with Minerva just wandering graveyards commuting with the dead, or at least she appears to be
2: doing such. Yeah, and And, I was going to say, I think we really need to go over the uh, titular chapter of this book and... uh... Basically his first real experience with Minerva and Jim Williams introducing her and sort of what all goes into that because, I mean, we have the title of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil and a chapter that is titled Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. (laughs) And it essentially doesn't factor into 90% of the book, which is an exploration of Savannah and a little bit on the trial and things like that but it obviously was important enough to the author to not only have a chapter titled this, but the book itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that the sort of background that that Minerva talks about in terms of uh, voodoo practices is that magic is strongest at around midnight. And Mm -hmm. so the time before midnight is the time for doing good magic And the time after midnight is the time for doing evil magic. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically spending time, especially in a graveyard where I presume is a place of power, though I don't think she really gets into that. um, And uh, it's where she visits the grave of her late husband to affect these practices
0: i think in some ways because her husband's buried there that it is a place of power she literally harvests the soil from his grave as a key part of her magical uh practitioner
1: and it is you know i think that the idea of sort of midnight itself um being so powerful because it is this space and time of crossing over um i Mm -hmm. think that the graveyard has that same kind of that same kind of effect um this sort of liminal space where the dead and the living um can be in a communal space together, um, seems to have that it is easier to talk th- to the dead in a graveyard, um, just sort of proximity based, although she seems to be able to kind of do it um, in a variety of different places. Mm-hmm. But that also seems to be, like you said, Spencer, um, sort of pushed by this graveyard dirt, which is, it seems to be one of the main ingredients of um, it, any of the, any of the um, kind of solutions that she comes up with.
0: Yeah, well, I, I love. I love that she just starts basically depositing massive amounts of this dirt at uh, Lee Adler's house, and the prosecutor's <laughs> house to somebody to interfere with him. I just, I would love the reaction. Say, what the fuck is all this dirt ending up in our house every day?
2: I wonder how much we would have to pay one of your neighbors to dump dirt on. <laughs> um, B J, let's sit- talk <laughs> offline. <laughs> <laughs> Not much. Um. So, so the other thing that that I wanted to talk about is so, uh, Jim Williams is collecting. Uh, things essentially to bring with him to Minerva when we first get introduced to the idea of Minerva and the author is hanging around with uh, Jim Williams and Jim Williams says hey um, since you're interested in the trial and you're writing about it do you want to come along with me with one of the pieces of my defense in this trial and I guess I, I maybe I'm remembering it wrong but I sort of feel like it, it was almost a bait and switch where it's like, hey, do you want to be let into a little bit more of the depths of the trial? And the author sort of readily agreed and it's like, okay, well, we're going to go and take these bunch of dimes and this water that has never been in a pipe and we're going to go see a voodoo practitioner. Mm-hmm. And the author is kind of like, okay, then that's what and, we're going to do. And, and you're driving. I need you to drive me to Buford.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that's because he has his vodka tonic with him.
0: Um, of course. <laughs> Priorities. But it, when he when they go to this graveyard with their dimes and the water that has never touched a pipe, um, i trying to remember, but it, it, the, as you said, BJ, there was the time for the doing the good magic where it was primarily directed at well, Jim Williams' victim in some ways try to get him back on their side. Whereas mm-hmm. the the after effect after uh, midnight was specifically directed at the prosecutor to in some ways undermine him or his case. That, yeah. Do I have that right?
2: I think that that's right. I'm also trying to remember whether the uh, Dr. Buzzard interaction was before or after midnight, or maybe a little bit of both.
0: I think I think it was a little bit of both. So I think I remember uh, Jim Williams getting frustrated that she keeps on trying to go back to that throughout the course of their own proceedings.
2: Yeah, and I think this is just sort of another case where Jim Williams' own sense of importance is just so hopelessly dashed by somebody who's in. He is paying to do voodoo like he's paying this woman to essentially be there and uh help him out and she wants absolutely nothing to do with it basically (laughs) it's like you know that's great and all but i really want to spend time trying to get some lotto numbers Mm -hmm. um and so even in our first introduction we see essentially what's sort of important to minerva and uh i guess a little bit of the sense of what she how she interacts with the world um and i don't know it's it's a it's a fun flavor to the story
0: well she continues to appear throughout the course of the trial proceedings being in jim william's perspective is ace in the hole but one of her chapters i find most fascinating is definitely uh her last one of where i believe it takes place after jim williams has finally effectively been acquitted um Mm -hmm. and you know cannot be subject to any further trial due to double jeopardy of where Minerva's still doing her job, though. I mean, I trying to remember is Jim Williams still paying her at this point to go out to the cemetery where she does to still speak with the dead to try to protect him?
2: I think so. I think it's I think it's also a fairly nominal amount. Um and her, so her
0: retainer is not high.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's sort of a nominal amount, especially in terms of, you know, the amount that Jim Williams has been paying, but I guess I, I view this as uh, Jim Williams' version of The Empty Dog Leash. <laughs> yeah. um, that's, an, that's,
0: an, that's an apt comparison there, BJ.
2: And and so he's just sort of like, all right, well, you know, you help me out, I'll help you out, and, you know, maybe you continue uh, working your magics and, and keeping uh, Danny off, uh, his evil spirits off my back. Um, and I, I guess, I think the other thing that, i really liked about her as a character was uh and we mentioned this in in a previous episode she actually gave reasonable advice mm-hmm. to jim williams i mean it was couched in the uh her worldview, but it was basically right. you know don't badmouth danny houseford at the trial that's not you're gonna anger the spirits and he's gonna mess with you but it's also you know you could also interpret it that as you know, she's couching at that, but it's just like, it's not going to play well with anybody if you're bad-mouthing the person that you said you killed in self-defense. And But up until that point, kept around because reasons. Mm-hmm.
0: I think she also, um, it's a place of perspective, but in the last chapter of where they were pretty much straight up asks her what her point of view is on Jim Williams and what happened, I think she delivers, in my mind, is probably the most accurate interpretation as to what happened that night. That she says, oh, yeah, I always knew he was guilty and see it on people. He didn't necessarily mean to kill him, didn't necessarily plan it out, but he shot him in a moment of passion and he died. Now we just have to make things right after the fact. That pretty much matches my view of what probably happened that night. I don't believe the prosecutor It was an elaborate um, conspiracy to uh, um, do a premeditated murder and covered up with prior events. I don't believe Jim Williams that any, any way did it in full self-defense. Um But I think it, again, reflects just her kind of natural level of knowledge and wisdom as to things that she couches in a magical view.
1: And she does say something really interesting. I um, just got right to that point. You were just talking about, um, Spencer, about Minerva always knowing that Jim Williams was guilty. And she says, like, this really interesting line at the end of her explanation to the author. Um, She says, but I helped him anyway because he didn't mean to kill the boy. I do feel sorry for the boy, but I always takes the side of the living, no matter what they done.
0: I love that line. That's a great line. That's
1: so interesting, especially when it is kind of wrapped around, or it is it is wrapped in this conversation with um, an understanding of whether or not justice has been done or not. And her sense here, or at least what she's saying about justice and the kind of um, immediacy of the living as being inherently more important than the sort of pastness of the dead Um, Mm -hmm. Particularly given what she does For Mm -hmm. her own living Is so so fascinating And I had completely forgotten um, That she said that Until you were talking about her kind of read on the situation
0: Um, It's another reason I just love this last chapter so much Because it's really just wrapping up so much of the story It's tying us back to the exact same graveyard Where things effectively began It's tying us back to what um, were You know, I'm blanking on the name of his victim. This is the problem we do with story stretching over four weeks. What was the name of the... Danny. It's going back to Danny's wish throughout all that he would be buried back in this graveyard. It's tying into the themes of Savannah again. It's really encapsulating her own sometimes twisted and conflicted view of her profession and what the importance of it is. But this last chapter is probably one of my favorites of the whole story.
2: Yeah, I think it gives us sort of a good sense and a good wrap-up. And um, I think the it's sort of the, the appropriate bookend Uh to the first chapter where he, it's still sort of a, uh, it's a resident of Savannah sort of taking him and, uh, taking him on, uh, the author, uh, under their wing and sort of telling them sort of what's going on in, uh, in the world around him in Uh Savannah. Um, but of very opposite side of a coin. Um, more the Gothic than the Southern of the Southern Gothic.
0: <laughs> it's completing his uh, his story about perspectives in some ways. Uh, as you said, it's telling telling the same tale from a different angle.
2: Um, I, so I feel like we've uh, done a reasonable job of covering the last two main characters that uh, that are in the story. Um, are there? I think I talked briefly that uh, the the crazy engineer scientist was pretty much my I, <laughs> yeah, well, let's let's do favorites favorite who, who, favorite uh, yet. Uh, of, of this
0: book that's just loaded with different characters and where characters are much more the focus than anything resembling an overarching story. Who did you all like best or who did you find most interesting? I, mean, BJ, I, I think you were going like to engineer. I
2: can, yeah, I feel like I can reiterate my, my uh, appreciation of the engineer that, that I, I said L- L- last time. But Luther Driggers or something like yeah, that? Yeah, Driggers. Um, Druthers. Druthers. What was Driggers from? Anyway, Druthers. Um, that, you know, he's sort of. He's tinkering, and I, you know, I like that he does that, and I like sort of that, you know, I'm gonna play around, and then I'm gonna toss these uh, fluorescent goldfish in the in the bar, <laughs> and um, just he, he's a source of random and entertaining knowledge. Um, he's a little on the weird side, but but I like that that little vignette that the author has that really deepens the story.
1: And he really like he is a character. And I mean, we get we get a lot of different sort of quote unquote Southern characters here um, that do a lot of different things that that kind of encapsulate a lot of different types of um, people that you encounter in the South more generally, but Savannah in particular, which you know is its own kind of thing. Um, but he's the one character that we get that really gets at the kind of like just oddballness. That you can find um, in places like Savannah, and we don't really see that in anybody else. Everybody else has their own weird little narrative, um, and they are they are kind of a little off in their own ways. But this one is the kind of like intense um, d- weirdness um, <laughs> that you can get in a pl- in a place like Savannah um, that really can be concentrated in in individuals.
2: Yeah, um, and I-, I think he's just the. A character that i would enjoy meeting more than a lot of the society characters mm-hmm. um and i think would be more fun to have a beer with than most of the other characters <laughs> that that we meet um because i feel like most of the other ones would be drinking uh you know a nice bordeaux or some cognac and be a little bit more uh self-important sure oh, well. um, so spencer Ah, I have
0: several different minds on this. It's hard to just pick one, but in terms of a character archetype that I always just enjoy, I, mean, I love, I enjoy Joe Odom. I love the, I, I enjoy the idea of a lo- the lovable rogue, about the character you have no right or reason to enjoy as much as you do, or want the company of as much as you do, given that his is legitimate, uh, selfish and corrupting influence over so many of the things, aspects of the story. But I, I love his persistence, I love how he continues to insert himself in so many other narratives, and i I enjoy that he endures despite everything else that's thrown against him, and just keeps on doing what he does. So I quite enjoy him. And then debating between Chablis and Minerva, I ultimately probably picked Minerva just because I love her perspective on the story, I love her wisdom, and I love how effectively she's used as a bookend for the earlier chapters.
2: Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you. I think watching Shibli would be great, but I feel like spending time with her would make <laughs> me uncomfortable.
0: Yeah. Uh, I was dying of, with the narrator for a lot of those chapters.
2: Like, he, you would love for her to be in a uh, panorama that you're people watching. Um, but. You don't but yeah. want
1: her too concerned with your actual life.
2: Exactly. <laughs> um, and, Spencer, I, I sort of wonder if you would have liked Joe Odom quite as much before college. Because I kind of feel like. <laughs> Um, your, your roommate throughout all of college and then, you know, maybe some of the other people in our group were kind of the Joe Odom to, to <laughs> your author.
0: <laughs> I often joked about some of you guys is that you delighted in fucking with me, fucking with me, but would never leave me fucked. And yet there's definitely an element <laughs> of that to Joe Odom. Um, so. But about you, Sarah? Who would you pick?
1: I have to pick um, Emma Kelly, the lady of 6,000 songs. Oh, she's a great one. Her, I would have been more than happy to just sort of ride around with her on her day-to-day life and, like, where she is going um, each night to play and sing and, like, interact with people. And her real just, like, joie de vivre is infectious. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just absolutely adored her. Um, And the way that she interacts with people like Joe Odom um, in this, like, a very just
2: old woman... (laughs)
1: Like, okay, that's nice, dear. Um, it made it just it just made me so happy um, in the chapters yeah. that she was involved in.
2: Yeah. It's like, oh well, of course that I knew he robbed a bank. Yes. Why would you think otherwise? <laughs> I just thought he'd be the a good person for the job. It's
1: fine. Um, um, also, okay. the uh,
2: oh mm-hmm. oh, honey, you must be new. Um, I understand that you stopped me, but you should probably uh, wait. Police for officer. Your... Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, her, like, I think riding along with her would be some of the most terrifying, oh, but yeah. also fun times. And yeah. I just, I do fully 100% believe that she would go, you know, 80, 90, and pitch black, um, you know, th- throughout the uh, areas around Savannah. And that just being the most terrifying experience being in the car with her. Yes, but it's um, worth it. Yeah. To
1: get wherever Uh, it is you're going.
2: Yeah. Um, And just, you know, her interactions with uh, all the churches and playing at the churches there. Um, But yeah, the vignette that I was mentioning, I believe, you know, she got stopped for speeding Mm -hmm. somewhere somewhere. You know, on on some highway by by a rookie cop, and basically uh, the sergeant or whatever shows up, and it's just like, "Oh, son, you don't know who you have here. Uh, apologize and send her on her way."
0: <laughs> Not even send her escort her, I think even ordered to get oh, her yeah. to her
2: destination. I think so, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, she was another lovely character um and uh, i guess in, in reading a little bit about some of these characters she sounds like a lovely person in real life because uh she she very much is a uh, a real person as pretty much everybody um in this book is.
0: Here's a here's a fun question for you all, but would Jim Williams make it in your top 5?
2: No. No. Uh, I I think You're... he's probably one of the characters that I would least like to spend time with. I think he's a fascinating (laughs) character and I think he's well-written. And I think, you know, the liberties that were taken with the, uh, uh, the writing, I think to probably to a certain extent, um, make him a little bit more interesting, but,
1: but also make him a little bit more unlikable. I would imagine Mm -hmm.
2: too, um, because he's written in the sort of like caricature. I was going to say, I think probably made him more like, oh, really? Um, I I think that it would have been fun to be at one of his parties. Yeah. um, But to actually know him, I think would have just been unpleasant and disconcerting because I guess I just imagine that while everybody gossips, he sort of has a gossip and a, you know, this is how I'm trying to, these are my machinations, Mm -hmm. essentially, and that's sort of his entire perspective on life. Mm-hmm. and just sort of one of those people that is just like, I, I feel bad for you. I, you know, I just, uh. ugh.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've had many experiences meeting new people that kind of resemble that first chapter with the narrator of where Jim Williams starts out interesting, knowledgeable, shows an interesting house, and perfectly sane. And then by the end of the chapter, it's like, oh, you're a self-absorbed, kind of insane asshole. Gotcha. I've had so many of those moments of meeting new people where by the end it's like, oh, I really had this perspective wrong when I started this conversation. But Yeah. <laughs> Well, in terms of in terms of uh, we've kind of done circles around it. What do we want to say about Savannah? What do we get out of Savannah? Or what perspective we have on Savannah as a result of this intense character study slash travel guide that we just went on?
2: Um, I think I mentioned it before, but it makes me want to visit Savannah. Yeah, makes um, me want to go back. Yeah, it makes yeah, me want yeah, to go back too. Um, I, you know, maybe we will, uh, as a group, do that at some point. It's not too f- well. It's sort of a midway point, I guess, between uh, the two of you guys.
1: Yeah, it's not far from. For us, are,
2: are you on the same, like, latitude line
0: going there, basically? Uh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, hell, I'd, I'd be happy to do an episode in Savannah if we could do that as a, as a tourism episode.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, take some traveler cups and, and have a uh, similar degenerating uh, episode as we did on New Year's. Uh, hey, or actually, the night before New Year's.
0: Hey, if you guys want to find that um, that bench gravestone in the middle of that graveyard and do an episode on it, I'm down.
2: Sounds delightful. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think that's sort of really the sense that I got. Um, I think the the sense of Savannah society that I got was very sort of closed and unpleasant, but the city itself and the outward interactions that you would have with it if you visited would be very lovely. Mm-hmm. And I think that the... Uh, first and last chapters sort of really encapsulate what it is to be in Savannah, whereas the middle chapters are more of the character of the society. And so the lovely strolls through the squares and really enjoying the architecture and uh, the beauty and the history um, is really what people get to experience of Savannah. Um, And then there's an underbelly to pretty much all things. And this is the uh, middle part of the book is sort of really the underbelly of the high society of Savannah.
1: Yeah, I think one of the the real senses that you get in this novel is, um, I think you could say the self sufficiency of Savannah, um, but mm-hmm. also the self containedness of it. Um, and so, I think one of the questions that I have for both of you is where where do you think our narrator ends up, kind of in the culture and milieu of savannah by the end of it like is he is he ever an insider or is he always an outsider
0: i think almost it's his perspective that he never could be an insider i mean i think he ends the book with the idea that this is a very much closed isolated overindulgent uh, well well tended overindulgent garden that he can only ever really look in on i think in some ways that he kind of The fact that he spent eight years there but never moved there suggests in some ways he may have eventually come to that conclusion that as fascinating as it is, as much as he enjoys it, as much as as he wants to experience it, he can never really become one of the gardeners of it. He can never really become part of the actual city in that kind of way.
1: And it does seem a little bit like, by the end of it, especially given some of the experiences that he has had, that maybe he doesn't really want to (laughs) either.
2: Yeah. um, I guess what I would say is that his being part or his uh, sort of latching on to the high society of Savannah sort of gave him the uh, big fish in the little pond kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are probably more accepting parts of Savannah society that he could have been a part with, but would probably have been a lot less interesting.
0: Right. Um, I mean, if, when, when you go to the town, you walk around the historic district. That's what, that's what you do. And that's what he effectively does in terms of who he hop with. But that's, mm-hmm ultimately going to be the most exclusive of communities that you can ever only ever look in on.
2: Yeah. Right. And so I'm sure there's other parts of Savannah society that he could have been, uh, fairly well accepted into, but, uh, wouldn't have the same character. Um, wouldn't have
0: been the Savannah
2: as he views it. Right. And, and I think that that's typified by a lot of the, by pretty much everywhere, Um, I mean, there are parts of Florida that Florida man comes from, but while that might be interesting (laughs) to report on and read about, no one actually wants to essentially participate in. And Um, yet they keep coming. Right. I mean, but, you know, the Southern California, I mean, there are loads of parts of this society that I have absolutely no interest in participating in. And then unless you are sort of part of that culture, I would say some are more welcoming than others. Um, Uh I mean, there's the military, there's, you know, all the surfers, there's a bunch of extremely well-to-do and important people, especially up in LA, but even here that are hilariously wealthy and they probably have similar, you know, fun stories to write about, but not really people that the general public are going to be very well accepted. Um, And I would guess, you know, I would say the same thing to a certain extent about the triangle, but I feel like the triangle is, is in essentially uh, three cities that are not fitting into the South. Yeah. So, Um,
1: and, and also three cities that are very different from each other and also three cities that are um, becoming more and more a kind of place where people are moving to from elsewhere as well. Right. Um, Although I would say, and and maybe maybe this is the case in in all three cities, but like Chapel Hill has its um, like outposts of a sort of like old Chapel Hill society um, mm-hmm. that is unbreak into a ball unless you come from the right place and have the right money um, and know the right people.
2: There are people when we all went there that we met and got to see on especially football uh, game days yes. that. There were three, four, five plus generations that had all gone to University of North Carolina, lived in close proximity, and clearly were part of a society that, I guess, I. I'm not a part of and, and Spencer, I don't think you were, uh, oh. Sarah, I mean, maybe more, you know, in, in the suburbs of Illinois, your family might be, but.
1: No, we are, we are the aristocracy of <laughs> rural Southern Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you.
2: <laughs> but I mean, one thing I enjoy
0: about the comparison to Chapel Hill is there's some suggestion by the writer that Savannah could, if it wants to, or if it doesn't resist enough, go the same route of many Southern towns and becoming college towns. So he talks about that there's an art school that's moved in that is growing exponentially and how much the outer community is really uncomfortable with these new kids that are moving in that don't embody their culture, but are occupying historic buildings and modeling and inserting themselves with some degree of, you know, I won't say aggression, but force into the middle of their downtown community, which could, as they continue to grow, perhaps alter the culture in the way we see with small towns like Chapel Hill becoming influenced by so many outsiders coming in.
2: And I would say that's even true of larger cities. I know that uh, a lot of that's happening in Baltimore. Um, A lot of the revitalization, or especially early revitalization, of a lot of neighborhoods that are, um, I would say, let's say featured on the wire, or at least touched upon. (laughs) Um, That's a way of putting it. uh, So there's a fairly large uh, art College, uh Maryland Institute College of Art, that a lot of the artists are then uh moving out or while they're there, moving into uh parts of the city. And so there are large larger artists communities that are then moving into these more affordable areas and then obviously to a large extent changing the character of them as Uh, they become a larger section of that population so I think that it's an interesting uh, thing that they talk about in Savannah and it's it's so very true even in larger cities
0: well guys I feel like we've we've covered a lot of territory I have utterly adored talking about this book with y'all I had very (laughs) few expectations going in and I love I really enjoyed that you guys recommended it because it has been a delight to discuss it over the course of many weeks um in terms of where we are going forward I think we had a, bit, a brief discussion about what books we're trying to uh discuss next and I believe, uh, I yeah, believe- in,
2: in deference to um your your other the other love in your life um <laughs> uh we're going to do uh, another of the Duncan egg stories
0: yeah, The Sworn Sword, or quite, a, quite a good one of the Duncan Egg novellas, in kind of honor of the next season of Game of Thrones that is coming out so very much soon. Next and last season of Game of Thrones is coming out soon. Uh, that one's a relatively short read. It's a delight to get through. As we're going forward, though, we're going to need to pick up another big novel. And I think as we've discussed over the prior weeks, uh, both of you have recommended another one. And based on this one, I am very much excited for what it's going to be. What can you tell us briefly about it so we can get our readers started on what's going to be a bit of a 600-page en- endeavor?
2: <laughs> so, yeah, um, I guess I-, I think that Sarah initially talked about this briefly. Uh, this is off. Behind the curtain, we actually do talk about books and reading uh, apart from just this podcast. and <laughs> okay, <shall> um, <laughs> There are a couple of books that Sarah had recommended to me to read, and I believe The Fifth Season by N.K. Jamison was one of them. And then I looked a little bit into it because I was looking at uh, some new books to read. And so it's a trilogy. We're going to do the first book. We may come back and do uh, some more of them. But um, N.K. Jameson, uh, I believe it was 2016, 17, and 18, won the Hugo for best fantasy novel in each of the books of uh, of this trilogy.
0: That is damn impressive.
2: Um, and so I picked it up. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And Sarah, I think you were excited when, when I resuggested it. And I was also excited about this because I think that it is a good foray into a uh, really good science fiction book that is not uh, old white male.
1: Yeah, and I was I was excited that I was excited that you enjoyed reading it, B.J. Because it is it's a little odd. Um, and it's... it takes, it takes a certain amount of like suspension of disbelief to get the buy-in to get into it. Um, mm-hmm. but once you get there, like I thought that it was successful, um, in what it was, in what it was doing, um, and beautifully written and a really, I thought a kind of interesting and fresh story to tell too.
2: Yes. And I think that the style is very interesting and Um, I wonder if, Spencer, you're going to have the same experience, but it took me a little while to get comfortable in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that it is a very good discomfort um, (laughs) because so uh, a good chunk of the book is told in the second person, which I think is a very interesting way of doing it. And the person that you occupy is uh, like early sort of, I would say early middle age, but that's probably a little bit, uh, old, but a, uh, older mother. And so it, 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 for me was a very interesting experience and, you know, we'll talk a lot more about it, uh, when we get to it. Um, the, the other thing that I sort of wanted to bring up, which I find really amusing, and I think we should at least consider going back into it, but, um, the third, uh, installation of Binti, has been nominated for the Hugo this year. Really? Um, which, I given our feelings about the first one, I am curious if the uh, the second novellas <laughs> in in the trilogy either improved or proved to be quite interesting.
1: So yeah, nobody, none of, neither of you went and read the second one after we read the nope. first one. I'm assuming I didn't either. Um, but maybe <laughs> I will do that with all of my newfound free time. Yeah. Now that you're uh, no longer reading for work anymore. Yes, it were. I'm willing to try.
0: I mean, if it was one of the series I found disappointing, not in the sense that it wasn't whatever its quality was, but just I went into it with so many people, seemingly so much of the world, expecting me and hoping me to like it. So I have a certain degree of trepidation about continuing through it, just because I feel like I just don't get it, and I don't know what that means.
1: I'll give yeah. you a scouting report, Spencer.
0: Please do. I appreciate <laughs> it, but. Guys, I need to head on out because it's pretty discussed before recording. I have to get my teeth cleaned. But, BJ, and but I think we all have our reading material coming up. But where can, yep. w- where can people listen to us and find out more going forward?
2: Um, yeah, so we have a family of podcasts, which there are, uh, I would say, three and a third or two thirds. Um, so we have GOT Got questions with Spencer and Lee That um, presumably will be Entering essentially its final season And I'm sure they're very excited about The uh, season premiere of Game of Thrones that's coming in a little Over a week um, So if oh, you want indeed. to get as much out of uh, Each of those episodes as you can You should listen to them uh, Really go over it and discuss it And um, I'm also kind of excited To listen to their uh, despondency Once this all ends um <laughs> you you assume it you assume hbo is gonna let this cash cow in? i do not believe that for a minute <laughs> yeah i i think that they're gonna do a prequel um but we have talked about moving on to another series Indeed. of westworld um after uh, game of thrones concludes so uh keep listening um we have much more content to go with that um there is Whiskey on the Weekend where uh, Spencer, Lee, Levi, and I uh, drink some whiskey and chat about um, just our life, our opinions, all kinds of fun stuff. Um, and it's an excuse to date drink and spend some time with each other. Uh, hopefully, there'll be a new episode coming out soon. Um, and then. There are two other podcasts that are a little bit more spotty, Uh, Mangum Laughs, where Lee and I go over uh, our opinions on some stand-up comedy, and Mangum Hoops, where supposedly Lee and Levi actually talk to each other every so often and discuss what's (laughs) going on in the world of basketball, which um, ended disappointingly for a lot of us with North Carolina getting uh, bumped out of the NCAA championship a little (laughs) earlier than we all expected. Um, But, yeah, you can find all of that content and uh, more on MangumTalks.com and find all of our uh, podcast episodes on iTunes and Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. For me, that's Podcast Addicts. And if you have any comments, questions, suggestions, or anything else, um, you can go to MangumTalks.com, click Contact Us on the top right, and we read everything that you send in.
0: All right, then. BJ, thank you for sending us out, our loyal loyal listening base. Hope you get reading for next week. We'll be eager to talk about it. But until then, had a blast, everybody. Bye,
2: y'all. Yeah, have a good one.